Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I think that today we're gonna we're gonna have um, a very interesting guest. You know, we're gonna be touching on very important subjects. Um, you know, scaling, building, raising, also depression, uh, and, and and personal transformation too. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Jason Tan. Welcome to the show. Hey Alejandro, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, Jason, born in Taipei, Taiwan, you actually grew up in Asia. So tell us about those years. Yeah, I guess the first 12 years of my childhood were all over Asia, uh, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore, which all are actually uh, islands, which is an interesting connection between the three. But, yeah, I, I really appreciate that, um, you know, as an immigrant to the United States, I was able to build a more global perspective uh, in my early years of life. And, you know, my parents were very uh, insistent on taking us to different countries and wanting to help us uh, build a diverse worldview. And, and it was really fun to just see different cultures and, you know, try different foods and um, be in different worlds uh, apart from our own so that I could be more appreciative of how, you know, we're, we're all connected, but also all, also very different. Absolutely. And obviously you came to, to the U.S., to Seattle, and, and you were 12. So, I mean, obviously you, you were already quite aware and, and you had this, this background as well from, from having, you know, uh, being born and raised there in, in Asia. So was it like a big culture shock for you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I still remember in 1997 when we moved to Seattle, Washington, uh, we moved to this suburb called Mercer Island and um, coming from Singapore, which you know is a country of uh, a few million people packed into a island that's less than 30 miles wide. Uh, it's basically a, a Manhattan of, of Southeast Asia. Uh, coming from Singapore to Mercer Island was really hard because uh, at, at night, actually my first week living on Mercer Island, I couldn't even sleep. Um, there was just not enough noise at night to, to make things feel normal. It was too quiet. And so uh, I struggled to, to adapt in that way. And then I think uh, over the, the next few years, I think just as an immigrant, there's always um, an element of struggling to belong. And, you know, I've had a bit of a bit more of an accent. 
I didn't understand some of the cultural, you know, pop culture norms and stories and whatnot. Uh, and so, you know, it was, it was a bit of a journey to find my comfort in myself. So what was the trigger? How, what was that thing that, that really got you to come here to the U.S.? Uh, so my, my dad just wanted to really give us the best possible education. And, you know, his belief is that, uh, you know, one thing that America does pretty darn well in its education system is uh, encourage, you know, innovative, creative, uh, bold thinking. And he really wanted us to experience that because he had experienced it himself going to the University of Wisconsin and MIT for business school. And you obviously took this to the next level and you dropped out of high school. What happened there, Jason? <laughs> yeah, so um, in 2002, I had a, a unique opportunity to participate in a emerging program in the University of Washington, Seattle, called the Academy for Young Scholars. It's kind of pretentious sounding, but it's run by good people. And they uh, had sent out these letters inviting students from around, around the state of Washington, uh, you know, to potentially drop out of high school after their second year, sophomore year, and uh, join the University of Washington as a, you know, full student, no strings attached. And this was the very first year of the program. And so they were looking for some guinea pigs to try this on. And so, you know, uh, after some consideration, uh, you know, for me, I, I was excited to um, see what this journey would bring, even though I think in my head I had been much more uh, intent on going to a school like Stanford or MIT or Harvard. And yet, you know, this opportunity seemed very unique. And so I, I took a chance and it's one of the best things I ever did. But obviously being in college, you know, at 16, I'm sure that that also adds a tremendous amount of pressure. So so I'm sure that this was, this was, you know, like you got some really good lessons as to how to deal with pressure. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think being at 16 in college, the I never felt like I was behind academically. Uh, I think I did really well there. That's something I really give credit to my parents for, teaching me how to study, how to prioritize my time, how to work hard. I do think that uh, I, I felt a lot of pressure in terms of the social dynamics, like just there's a lot of kids at, at college who are older than me, and I I was you know two years younger than the average person, and so it it was not easy for me to break out of my circle of friends who had also done the same program as me. Got it, got it. And obviously here you graduated from from the university and got your computer science degree at 20 years old which is uh, which is amazing so um so i know that you you did you did your interviews and uh, apparently there was not a lot not, not a lot of luck so what happened there jason yeah so i mean coming out of college at 20 i was really intent on trying to work at one of the brand name technology companies you know uh, google microsoft amazon facebook and, you know, one of the challenges for me when interviewing for a software engineering job is that I get super nervous and I'm unable to really think that clearly. Um, and, you know, often in these software engineering interviews, you're asked to solve problems on the whiteboard in real time. And 
I just don't perform well under that kind of pressure. And so I bombed all the interviews with these big tech companies and I didn't get any offers. And it was a, it was a dark moment. I was actually really ashamed and embarrassed. And, you know, it was hard for me to talk about this with my parents, but, um, out of that process, one of the really, uh, memorable experiences happened in that, um, you know, this small startup at the time called Zillow, uh, actually reached out and I interviewed with them and they were, you know, 60 people at the time headquartered in Seattle, Washington. And a friend of mine had interned there the previous summer and I interviewed with them and didn't feel a lot of pressure in the interview. And because I really didn't know who they were, I didn't know anything about startups in 2006 and that, you know, startups were not a big part of the culture in Seattle back then. Uh, and so, you know, I was very lucky to go through this interview with Zillow that had not too much pressure attached to it. And I was able to get an offer. And that started my journey into this awesome world of startups. So how that's, for example, like um, in this case, I mean, Zillow, a rocket ship. I mean, you were joining there when they were 60 and now, you know, the rest is history. You know, what does, what does a rocket ship like that, especially like when there's like 60 employees and, and you're experiencing that explosive growth, what, that, what did it look like? Yeah, I mean, I was also very lucky to, I think, learn from people who had done it before. So Rich Barton, the co-founder and you know, then CEO and also now CEO, he took over the reins again a few years ago. But um, you know, Rich had co-founded Expedia and led Expedia before starting Zillow. And so he was a seasoned entrepreneur, a seasoned leader. And I think that also really uh, drove a lot of my education into how to build culture, how to build uh, a company uh, and scale. Um, you know, one thing that I really um, look back on and admire Rich for doing was building uh, with Lloyd Frink, his other co-founder. They really invested very early in a, a great management team. And, you know, in my own journey of building SIFT from the last eight and a half years, I, I understand why that is so critical to get right early on. Yeah. Interesting. And and obviously here in Silo, you were you were doing a very good job and you were getting like these promotions and being acknowledged. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, 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 I would say the, the unfortunate event of having to go through a round of layoffs is something that affected you. And I'm sure that, you know, coming out of a college where you graduated at 20, a joining a startup that was booming. Uh, I mean, obviously you, you really felt on top of the world and then all of a sudden, this happens. How did you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, just for background, I think, you know, there was a combination of events that really drove my ego and inflated it to, you know, really unhealthy proportion. So graduating at 20 and then at Zillow, they would, you know, promote me or, you know, give me a bonus every six months. And that happened for almost three years. Like, I just thought that, I could do no harm and that, you know, the world revolved around me and I started making really unreasonable demands of the business to uh, invest in my career. And, you know, if I look back on that version of Jason today and if that version of Jason was working at SIFT, my company, uh, like he would have been managed out in a heartbeat. So I'm deeply appreciative to the Zillow management team for 
putting up with my bullshit as much as they did um, and trying to work with me because I, I wouldn't have had that patience today. But yeah, um, you know, in 2008, the economic uh, crash happened and uh, Zillow laid off roughly 30% of their workforce. And I was uh, part of that layoff. And it was a really important, painful moment, but really, really important for my personal growth and career growth because it just uh, really woke me up to the, the value and the criticality of working hard, staying humble, and not feeling entitled to anything. Got it. So then what happened next? What happened after Silo? Yeah, I mean, I um, actually tried to get a job at one of these big tech companies again, uh, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, and failed again because I suck at those types of interviews. And so um, I was lucky, though, to become the first employee at a venture-backed startup in Seattle called Optify. And then uh, you know, I was, a, I was the first engineer there, helped build a lot of the early systems, build a lot of the early team. And then 18 months in, I had another opportunity to become the CTO of a uh, startup with a college friend of mine. And, you know, we went to, we started this thing called Buzz Labs. And, uh, you know, that was an eight-person team in the social media sentiment analysis space. And we were acquired in 2011, early 2011, by Interactive Corp, um, the big multimedia conglomerate. Uh, And... And then a few months later, after that, uh, in 2011, moved down to San Francisco to help start SIFT. Very cool. So then uh, tell us about SIFT. How did you, you know, incubate the idea and how did you bring it to life? What was that, what was that process like? Yeah, so my co-founder, Brandon, and I were very lucky to go through this uh, startup incubator program called Y Combinator here in the Valley. Um, and the, in the process of going through the Y Combinator boot camp, uh, you know, we had this hypothesis that machine learning was going to disrupt a lot of different industries. And we, uh, ironically, were kind of a solution in search of a problem. And we didn't know what problem we wanted to solve, but we knew that there was something meaningful to build if we could find the right problem to solve. And so we asked a bunch of our friends, what are some problems that your business needs help with? And uh, oftentimes they would talk about fraud and you know we didn't know anything about fraud at the time I, I, I didn't even know what a chargeback was I had to go research that but as we dove into the space and did more digging it seemed like the status quo incumbent solutions were not innovating whatsoever these were often legacy rules-based systems that were highly reactive unscalable difficult to maintain and we're not just not not ready to work at today's scale of internet, especially on mobile devices. And so that seemed like a great opportunity for us to come in and modernize and democratize this industry. And you know, if you look at how Amazon and Google, and Facebook and you know, Microsoft build their own internal systems to solve these problems around protecting themselves against bad actors and driving trust with their end users. It's all powered by large-scale, real-time machine learning. So that was, for us, the interesting insight is that could we help make that type of technology accessible to everyone else that isn't one of these powerful tech giants? So then what kind of an impact did uh, Y Combinator have for you guys in the 
before and then also on the after you know you graduated yeah i think you know y combinator is just so good at creating uh, a culture of focus and ruthless prioritization like i think in the earliest years of a startup especially as a first-time founder like i felt really overwhelmed by all the things that we could do or think about there's a lot of distractions that come our way and i think y combinator really Uh, instills the right mindset on what matters most, which is uh, finding a real problem to solve and making, you know, your the, the making a solution that makes those um, finding a real problem to solve and making a solution that help that really helps the people suffering from that problem. And you know, as simple as that sounds, like it's it's hard to practice. But we're going through the White Combinator Bootcamp. I think they really surround all the founders with this. Um, mindset and it becomes very infectious and we're all just laser focused on trying to the motto of Y Combinator is we're all laser focused on trying to build something that people want and so by the end of the summer for us you know we had really zoned in on the problem a lot more and um, we're starting to come up with a solution that seemed to to have some promise um, and then also through YC you know we were able to meet a great set of uh, angel investors for our seed round um, and, and Max Levchin, the co-founder, uh, ex-co-founder and CTO of PayPal, very successful entrepreneur in his own right. Um, he was a guest speaker at one of the Y Combinator dinners um, and he ended up leading our seed round in 2011. And you know, he had a personal interest in what we did because he, one of Max's many accomplishments is that he built the anti-fraud systems at PayPal that was so critical to PayPal's success and helped PayPal survive all the uh, abuse and fraud when its competitors couldn't. Very cool. Very cool. And, and in this case, uh, how much, I mean, how much, how much capital have you guys raised today? We raised about $106 million. $106 million. And what ended up being the business model? What's the business model of Shift so that the people that are listening get it? Yeah, so we're a typical B2B SaaS business. We, uh, you know, you, scrub, you subscribe to the SIF service and we typically bill on transaction events. So whenever one of our customers has a transaction occurring on their service, we charge you know, X number of cents per transaction. And, uh, you know, we like this model because it aligns incentives. You know, we grow with our customers. So we have you know, really strong net dollar retention numbers and, uh, You know, it's it's a win-win in our opinion. And you were talking about Max Lefchan, obviously co-founder of PayPal. I mean, incredible. And the other investors. I mean, I've seen that you have here like people like Union Square Ventures and and Spark Capital. So fantastic investors. No, how has been the experience like over time? Because you guys have done uh, different rounds. I mean, I see all the way up to like a D round. So what has mm -hmm. been the experience and the different expectations that you have been encountering? Yeah, great question. I, I would say that with each new round of fundraising, it becomes more and more about just the, the numbers and the results. Like I think in the first round of funding, seed round, it's really just a vision and a dream at that point and a team, right? Like there's just nothing else. There's not much more to show. And then, you know, in a series D, for example, I think it's there's just a lot more data and track record of execution and so investors in my experience at least investors are 
a lot more analytical in the later rounds of fundraising. They're just trying to um, draw trend lines based on your past performance to understand where you're going. Um, yes, the story still matters, and uh, there's just more expectation around the maturity uh, execution of the business. Got it. Got it. And I know that, uh, for example, like here, you know, like how did you guys go about like building the team? What did that look like? So once you had, you know, your co-founder, you guys were clear about the approach, you got the money in, let's say from those angels and coming out of uh, YC, like what did the, the, the you know, the, the picture of building that team and the process, how did you guys go about that? Yeah. So, you know, Brandon and I were both software engineers. We were actually college roommates at the University of Washington, both the computer science. Um, and so I think from day one, the DNA of the company was really rooted in engineering and product and technology. And, you know, the first 10 people we hired were all software engineers that we had a lot of, a lot of them that we had previously worked with. And I think, you know, there, there's often talk about how the first 10 people kind of set the tone for the rest of the company's history. And I, I believe that to be true um, in my experience. I think that today, you know, we are uh, roughly 200 people and more than half of that is sales and marketing. And, you know, the, the sales and marketing team adds incredible value. And yet I think we are still at our core, a technology led business. I think what we are often known for in the industry is the, strength of our product and technology. And I think I trace that back to how we were founded in 2011 and the first 10 people we hired. Uh, but, you know, in my, in my journey too, I would say that I think this is a, maybe a lesson for other engineering driven founders where I just did not appreciate enough how critical sales and marketing is to uh, building a successful business. I, I wish I had um, studied that sooner and invested more in that earlier and um because uh, you know I, I i had the fallacy and the wrong belief that if we build a great product uh it will sell itself and that's just usually not true and so you know having really great people to help tell our story in a way that's differentiated and compelling and having those conversations with people because at the end of the day people buy from people that's it um, I've really come to appreciate that truism. And so, you know, there's no shortcut for that. You have to have sales and marketing folks to really drive those relationships. Absolutely. So how many how many folks do you have today? How many employees? Uh, just about about 200 people. Um, you know, we are headquartered in San Francisco, but we also have an engineering office in Seattle, a sales office in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, a sales office in Dublin, Ireland, and then a few folks sprinkled elsewhere. Very cool. So then how do you go about culture with all these different offices? You know, to be honest, we're figuring it out. I think scaling culture globally is a, a, a new puzzle for me, and I'm excited to, to take a crack at it. Um, you know, I think for, I, I use this framework um, that was given to me by my colleague, Kevin Lee, uh, federal, state, and local, where I think that not just culture, but everything at the business needs to be appropriately scoped. And, you know, some things need to be set at the federal level, and other things can, can and should be set at the state or local level. And, you know, with culture, I think that's the same thing where we have five core values uh, at the company that everyone is uh, trained on and really tries to champion and live by. But then I really appreciate that the Dublin office is going to have its own 
derivative of the core values and that's okay because i think we need to um you know uh, adapt to the local and specific situation uh dynamics got it got it very very cool so uh, one of the things here that uh, that i like to ask you about you know when it comes to the journey of of being an entrepreneur i mean it's quite um quite a journey uh, it's remarkable it's also a uh, mentally is very challenging too not long ago, I actually published uh, a piece on on why entrepreneurship involves depression. And, uh, you know, in this case, I know that from 2014 to 2017, this is something that you experienced uh, firsthand. Uh, Jason, maybe maybe you can give us some insights into that. Yeah, and this is something that I'm really passionate about. I think that we don't talk enough uh, in the community about mental health and it's you know, often got stigma. Some things are changing. I'm really happy to see, you know, some athletes and celebrities starting to open up more about it. And I still think we have a long way to go. And, you know, this journey of being a founder is just so tough. And uh, I don't think we are equipped with the tools and the resources and vocabulary, or I wasn't equipped at least, to uh, be open about my struggles and to feel comfortable sharing that. And uh, to even understand what I was going through and to be in tune with my emotions and how I was feeling. And uh, I think, you know, my, my kind of armchair psychology um, is that I think if we don't, if we don't talk about how we're feeling over time, that compounds into depression. And, you know, we are all human. We all have feelings and that's okay. And we need to get better about, uh, creating space for others to share how they really feel and honoring those feelings. And I think that's where the connection and the feel, uh, the love and the support really happens is when we can truly be open and vulnerable about what's going on. But I think, especially in Silicon Valley, there's often a culture of fake it till you make it. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, in my experience, at least there's a lot of uh, masks that we're wearing. And I, I wore that mask too, um, because everyone else was. And I think that's part of what, um, you know, held me back from telling people how I really felt. And then I got really depressed from 2014 and 2017. And uh, I yet, even though I was depressed, I was very good at hiding that from myself and hiding that from other people. Uh, I think there's, for me at least, there was a big expectation that I need to, um, carry myself a certain way at the office. I need to uh, be a professional. You know, I put that in quotes and I need to be a CEO. And, and, you know, that often has a certain image that we're trained to uh, believe on how that should look. And I think I, I'm hopeful that we can change that. I think I'm hopeful that we can be a lot more um, human and open-hearted with work and, and leadership. So then, for example, like just so that, so that we provide a little bit more visibility, like for example, like what you experienced, or perhaps you know, like what what you what you know about this. Is it is it depression, like really like uh, being unexcited about you know, like the future, or or how would you really define it? Yeah, great question. So I mean, for depression, for me, what I I do remember most vividly was that oftentimes uh, on the weekends, I would come home from work on Friday, and I just wouldn't want to leave my room. Um, I would just stay in my room the whole weekend and not want to see anyone. And, um, you know, people would invite me out to things, but I'd always find an excuse not to join them. And, um, you know, 
Uh, I don't want this to be a pity party for myself, but it's more like I think that was what was going on for me. And I just was like unexcited to connect with other people. I was unexcited to, uh, you know, be social and uh, experience life uh, more fully. And I think what was driving that was that I was very disconnected from myself. And I, I didn't feel like I had a lot of support, um, um, even though I'm sure that my family and friends, had I, you know, had the courage to be more vulnerable about what was going on for me, had I had more of the tools and vocabulary to talk about what was going on, I'm confident that they would have supported me um, all the way through. But I didn't even know where to start. It's like they say, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So probably you, you didn't know at that time that, that that was there for you. So I guess saying, what, what was that breakthrough moment for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been very lucky in the last uh, two years to uh, participate in this program called Leaders in Tech. And it's a nonprofit organization here in Silicon Valley that's just getting started. But it's, um, you know, if it takes a lot of the concepts taught in this Stanford Business School class called Touchy Feely. And, and this business school class has just a legendary following. You know, Stanford Business School students typically rate it as one of the most impactful courses of their time at GSB. Um, I, I didn't take this class myself. I haven't been to business school, but the instructor that really um, popularized it and taught it for 30 years, Carol Robin, um, left Stanford GSB and started up this Leaders in Tech program. And her vision, uh, alongside uh, you know, Joe and Sue, her vision is to try to um, build more open-hearted, uh, vulnerable leadership cultures in Silicon Valley by starting with the leaders at the very top. And so me and some other founders and CEOs, uh, we have been going through this pretty rigorous training and workshops and, and uh, you know sessions where we uh, learn how to actually talk about how we feel. Um, and I think you know in Silicon Valley, we are hyper intellectual. We love to think big, we love to solve problems, we love to be analytical. I think we need to add to the mix something for the heart. And you know, it's it's really the head and the heart. It's not the head or the heart. We need both to succeed uh, sustainably. And so I've been that was kind of a breakthrough for me was being equipped with the tools and the vocabulary to um actually discuss what was going on for me uh, and, and being vulnerable. This is uh, super powerful, Jason. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this. Uh, going back now to, to SIFT, I know that, um, you know, like for you, like evolving the leadership team, you know, has been a, a big one. Uh, and obviously, you know, like when you go through different phases, different cycles as a business, also, you know, like the people need to adjust, you know, like there is, you know, like also, you know, like different challenges that perhaps require different skill sets, so how has been this transition for you guys? Yeah, it's been really tough, honestly. I think, um, you know, we, we hired a bunch of great executives five, four years ago that came in and did a stellar job of helping the business grow. And, uh, you know, I think the unfortunate and ironic price of success is that uh, sometimes that new complexity, new stage, is no longer a fit, mutual fit. And so it's a really uh, painful um, uh, process to say goodbye, at least for me at least, because I, I'm fiercely loyal. and I really appreciate those who took a chance on us early and invested their, their careers in SIFT. And, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but I guess that's kind of how things work sometimes. 
And so for the last two years, we've been going through a, a pretty uh, extensive overhaul of our management team. Uh, and, you know, one thing I do think about is that we often um, sometimes judge the exiting person uh, as, as worse than the person that comes in to fill their shoes. But I think this should change. I think that it's only because time is linear and moves forward that this dynamic is happening. I think we need to give credit that the opposite is also true, that oftentimes the executives that come in at a later stage of business are not the right fit for the earlier stage of business. They each require different skill sets and the skill sets are not better than or worse than each other. It's just all part of the journey. And so, you know, um, we're, 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 I'm very grateful to those who have uh, worked for us. And then I'm also really excited about the executive team we have in place now to help us get through this next stage of growth. Got it. And obviously, uh, on, on the journey of realizing this vision for Shift, like, let's say, uh, Jason, that you go to sleep and you wake up five years later. You can imagine, uh, like, an amazing snooze. You wake up and you wake up in a world where the vision of SIFT is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, so at SIFT, our mission is to help everyone trust the internet. And, you know, this is something that uh, I see more and more in the headlines. Like, there's a risk that this isn't happening. I think that we're often um, raising our children and coaching our, you know, grandparents to be default skeptical of everything they read online, default skeptical of who they interact with. Like it's not, there's no trust, uh, or there's very little trust these days. And that pains my heart. I think that, you know, at least one of the principles in America is innocent until proven guilty. I would love to see more of that world on the internet. And so for us, we're, we're, we're really on a mission to help everyone trust the internet all around the world so that we can achieve our fullest potential for what the internet was promised to do, which was to break down barriers and, you know, Kind of level the playing field and connect anyone everywhere. And if we don't have that trust, it's not going to happen. And so, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, like that's going to be the thing that gets us up in the morning uh, is really helping everyone trust it. Very cool. And one of the questions, um, Jason, that I typically ask the guests that, that come on the show is, if knowing what you know now, I mean, it's an amazing journey. You know, the one that you guys have had with, with SIFT, you know, we're talking about like, Nine years now uh, pushing this uh, forward, you know, from, from nothing to, to what you guys have created, which is remarkable. If you had that chance to have a chat with your younger self, perhaps that younger Jason that, that was thinking about maybe launching a business, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self, knowing what you know now and why before launching a business? Hmm. Yeah, the advice I would give myself is not really business advice, but I think it has such huge impact on the business. Um, my advice would be to look within and really do the hard work of understanding myself and understanding my motivations, understanding my triggers, and trying to uh, increase my self-awareness and consciousness. Uh, I think... You know, when I look back eight years ago, I often made decisions back then more from a place of fear and ego. And these days, uh, still not perfect, but I try to do things today more from a place of um, love and, and compassion. And, you know, it's easier said than done, but I think that has really um, served me and it served the business and served those around me to, to operate from that place. 
So when you are in that, doing that, like let's say like, you're looking deep uh, or someone is looking deep within within themselves, maybe like the folks that, that are listening to really understand those motivations, no? where they're coming from. Like, is there like a specific exercise or, I mean, is it taking a walk? Is it uh, meditating or or how do you really are able to connect with yourself to really understand what are really those motivations? Yeah, I, I would give a couple of pieces of advice on this. One is to not underestimate the value of therapy or something like that. I think that therapy often has a stigma of, you know, it's only for crazy people or whatever that, that's stereotype is, I think that's really unhealthy. I think that we're all humans. We all have baggage from whatever has happened to us, and that's okay. We all deserve to get support, and, and therapy is an incredible vehicle to help unpack you know, what's happened to us. I think the second thing for me has been surrounding myself with people that are willing to give me feedback. And, uh, you know, for, you know, like, there's always the, the, the risk of those around you just want to tell you what you want to hear. And so for me, like pushing people to just tell it to me straight and the critical thing to really make that happen is to not get defensive when people tell you what you don't want to hear, which is really, really hard. But I think practicing that mindset, like, look, this is all coming from a place of love and support. And this is in the spirit of helping me be my best self and uh, not being too self-critical and judgmental about, the things I need to work on, um, you know, that's really uh, helped me in my journey. Very profound, Jason. Very profound. Thank you for sharing that. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, my email is jason at sif.com. And yeah, I, I'm really passionate about a lot of the topics we talked about. And so I'd love to um, help whatever way I can and connect with those who are uh, in need of help. Amazing. Jason, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you, Alejandro. This was a pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.